Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 7. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may be that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you, because of the Lord your God, and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Hey, everybody. Hello. <laughs> Subdued as usual. I wouldn't expect any less. All right. Uh, how are we doing? Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> All right, so uh, I'm doing well. Thanks for asking. Uh, <laughs> my name is Sid Drew, and I'm the campus minister uh, for RUF, Reform University Fellowship. We are a Christian campus ministry that exists to serve this campus and you all, wherever you are and however we are, you are, and we mean that. Um, we mean that uh, in the sense that we don't want RUF to be for one kind of person. We don't want it to be for one social scene or a few social scenes on campus. We don't want it for a particular personal background or to exclude a particular personal background. We also mean that spiritually. We want you to feel like you can come here and can be with us um, no matter where you are with Jesus or Christianity. And we mean that in the fullest sense of that, whether you call yourself a believer, whether you call yourself a spiritual skeptic, whether you'd feel convinced or unconvinced, we're really just glad you're here. And so we're just um, thankful that you're here. And I'd really just like to take the chance to get to meet you if I don't know you, haven't met you before. Uh, please say hello. Um, and also, I'm sure Eric and Maddie, our interns, would love to meet you too. Um, and a lot of other students as well. So, and look at that spread behind us. So there's all, all the more reason to hang out and if you can, if you have a few minutes after large group. All right, so that is what we're doing, large group. And we have been looking at the book of Isaiah for the most part. We took a little brief dip into Zephaniah. Uh, but now we're back, uh, and we're looking kind of at this topic of who God is through the biblical book of Isaiah. And I've said this a few times, but Isaiah, the reason that we're looking at Isaiah and this topic together is that Isaiah gives you these visions of God that are simply stunning. I mean, every passage, the prophet paints straight masterpieces. They're just really good, really beautifully rendered, vividly rendered show-and-tell understandings of God. Um, We have another one tonight, and they really do make us ask this helpful question, are we really sure we know who God is? And really, I want you to take the God you came in with and hold that God up to this passage and see whether they match up. And that's the intent behind that question. Second, this series is autobiographical. It comes out of my personal history, out of my year, really. And I'm betting that there are similar questions and experiences in this room. Um, And I don't need to go into my year every single week. Uh, just let's suffice to say that there's been a lot of times where I've really had to lean into uh, who God is when I don't know 
what God is doing. And really, that's the, that's the heart behind this series is that we're trying to trace the heart or trace the character of God when we don't see him at work and we don't feel his presence. Um, and so that's what we're up to. And this, far, this is where we pat ourselves on the back. Look how far we've come. Uh, so far, we've traced God's bigness and nearness, God's holiness, God's trustworthiness. God is the object of our hope, God's patience, God's power, God's gentleness, God's happiness, God's freedom. And then last week, we looked at God's bearing of our sins. And so this week, we're going to look at uh, Isaiah chapter 55 and God graciously and gracefully inviting, that he is graciously and grateful, gracefully inviting. So before we look at God more in this way, would you take a moment and pray with me for us? Father, uh, there's a lot going on in my own heart and mind, and I imagine with some of these students here, um, whether it just feels, they feel put out, um, or just ecstatic to be here, or likely somewhere in between, um, or whether they and I feel um, preoccupied um, with things that are too big for us. Uh, Maybe we feel preoccupied um, with things that feel like uh, fine grains of sand that slip through our fingers. I pray that you would be with us in these states of our heart and our mind, that you calm, that you'd show up, that you collect our thoughts, and that you'd mold them and press them, that you would massage the message of your gospel, the central truth of Christianity, into our hearts this evening. It's a beautiful passage, and I pray that, Jesus, you'd be high and lifted up and more beautiful and believable to the eyes of our hearts. We ask this, uh, pleading your promises back to you, Jesus. Uh, In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so I've developed this new personality test. You ready? Uh, I'm kind of done. Enneagram, (laughs) right? Or, you know, Myers-Briggs, thanks, RLO, but that's so 2000s, you know, maybe, maybe 20th century even. Okay, here's my new, here's my new personality test. Ask yourself this question. What kind of scam would you be most prone to fall for? <laughs> we all get these emails and these voicemails, okay? So, or maybe a better question, what kind of scam have you fallen for? <laughs> okay, which is even more dicey uh, and interesting, okay? Is it the phone call from the IRS and the Social Security Agency demanding personal information over the phone? And you, uh, or you're going to get fined and jailed, and you just freak out. That fear of getting in trouble just heightens you to want to press uh, call back. Or is it um, the email that you get from a dispossessed member of an African royal family? Uh, Or maybe that uh, sweepstakes, you've won your prize, collect your prize email, that only all you have to do is offer a little money to get a lot of money. And uh, you didn't know before those emails that country existed. Uh, you, did, you didn't remember applying for a sweepstakes, but the security of that kind of money kind of overruns you and overtakes your heart. And you think about what I could be and what I could do with it. Does the caller or email uh, play on your family ties? Right? You know some member of your family is in trouble. Have you ever gotten this call? I've gotten this one. And you need, that person needs money wired to them uh, as soon as possible. <laughs> Okay, so you're just feeling those heartstrings. Recently for me, maybe it was a year or two ago, um, I got an email that actually enticed my interest. It was an email from like some in, subcontinent of India college, maybe like a in, nonprofit institution, uh, which kind of fulfilled a personal fantasy of mine. Uh, it said something like Sid Druin or Pastor Druin. 
We've heard so much about your ordinary preaching and teaching to small gathered groups of people. (laughs) And uh, we want you to know that we would love you to come to India. We'll pay for your way and we'll publish your materials. And you can fill stadiums with people wanting to listen to you. Uh, And I can't tell you how much that scratched my itch to be celebrated and significant. (laughs) So I didn't say those words, by the way. I'm just mocking myself. Okay, so that's what I do up here, isn't it? Okay, bad metaphors. All right, so just wait. Uh, The sheer amount of scams that uh, out there tell us two important things about life and about us. Okay, first, we are actually discontented. We are thirsty or hungry in Isaiah's words in this passage. That's why scams work. Okay? And then the sheer amount of scams tell us that there are a lot of options that slake our deep thirst or feed that bored hunger out there. I mean, beyond scams, just think about the 24-hour news cycle, the internet chat rooms, the subplot, the subreddits, the conspiracy theories... Um, the advertising that is a constant bannered or blasting through the NCAA tournament, right, uh, that are promising to, to reach us. Um, all of these are tapping into and provoking our dissatisfactions and promising this real and ultimate satisfaction. I love the way that Don Draper, who's that character in uh, the TV show Mad Men, puts it. He says this, advertising is based on one thing, Happiness. And you know what happiness is? Happiness is the smell of a new car. It's freedom from fear. It's a billboard on the side of the road that screams reassurance that whatever you are doing is okay. That you are okay. What a great line. Good show. Anyway, in other words, the reason that advertising works is because there's some part of us that doesn't feel okay. That we're not doing, we're not okay about what we're doing. And we feel this kind of unhappiness deep down inside. And we're unhappy with the terrible flatness of these promising products, too. We are so consumered out, aren't we? I am. In the words of a philosopher, Charles Taylor, we feel the emptiness of the repeated, accelerating cycle of desire and fulfillment in consumer culture. The cardboard quality of bright supermarkets or neat row housing in clean suburbs like Uptown Davidson. Okay, (laughs) into... This flood market of scams, marketing, and opinions galore. Into the midst of all that. Into this guard up, hands over your face, consumer cynicism. Comes this invitation. Isaiah 55. I would argue that our situation makes this passage feel hard. It's hard to receive. It either feels like too good to be true. Or too much like somebody else's to be mine. For a lot of us. Maybe it feels like another senior citizen scam. Another ad for thirst-quenching Gatorade. Or hunger-satisfying Snickers bars. Okay? But the invitation of our passage tonight offers what scammers and commercials cannot offer. A God who doesn't just invite, he doesn't just call us out. He is the God who is actually inviting. He in himself is attractive. You know, it doesn't just do inviting, he is inviting. And this absolute person behind the invitation affects how this message goes out, right? This everlasting covenant, this steadfast, sure love does not need to convince us. It's not need to coerce. Relating to God is unconditional, unearned, and already paid for. There's no catch. There's no strings. There's no credit card information needed. 
It's amazing. God is just saying this. Come to my party. Yeah, uh, uh, just bring yourself. And eat and drink and enjoy all that I've spread before you. That's all he's saying. Can someone shut the door in the back? Sorry. It's kind of distracting. Anyway, so he's, he's saying, come to my party. Just bring yourself. Eat, drink, and enjoy all I've spread before you. So in a sentence, Isaiah 55, verses 1 through 7 tell us, God is inviting. He offers what he alone can satisfy. He offers what alone can satisfy us, him. God is inviting. He offers what alone can satisfy us, him. And he offers himself freely without cost and abundantly without limits. Okay, so he offers, God offers what can only satisfy us freely without cost and abundantly without limits. That's where we're going. Uh, And we get to see that radically different nature of God's invitation, what's being offered in the invitationer, the inviter, God, uh, and who is offering it by stepping into this feast image, uh, this festal image of Isaiah in this passage, God's feast. So we're going to look at an outline. There's two points, mercifully. Verses 1 through 3. We'll look at why we need this feast, or in my kind of way of talking about it, why should I go? Harumph. Okay. <laughs> Second question. In verses three through seven, we'll look at how this feast works, or like, I mean, who's going? Who else will be there? Don't we ask these kind of questions? We're going to get to this in a second. All right. So as usual, we're going to look at these points, these verses on your outlines handout. And we're going to begin with the beginning, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 2 and why we need this feast. Actually, verses 1 through 3 and why we need this feast. Okay, look, I love love this. God does not need to coerce us or convince us to come to his feast. But in verses 1 and 2 in particular, he does take the time to explain why he's throwing this party at all. What we would be missing if we didn't come. God answers that arms-crossed, grumpy, grew question, why should I go to this party anyway? Me at every childhood birthday, by the way. (laughs) Okay. God understands we are inundated with invitations. He gets that these many pitches that are thrown at us feel fake, and they just leave us more lonely and feeling more bored. He gets what we live in. And so he decides to explain what he's doing. Look at verses 1 and 2 in that light. They tell us that God is offering us something essential, something fundamental to our survival, as fundamental as bread and as water. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Why do you spend your money on that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? God's feast will have what we desperately need to live, water and bread. And these staples provide refreshment and relief when we can attach them to our deepest needs. When we recognize our hunger and devour bread out of it, or when we recognize our thirst and we chug water to slake it. Are you getting this metaphor? Because it's about to switch. Look, God does provide physical bread and uh, water through things like natural rainfall and bakers, usually with cool hats. This passage is, is poetic. I'm just throwing things in to wake you up, really, honestly. Uh, so see if you can catch them. Passage is poetic. It's driving at something more spiritual, right? It's sort of driving at something more spiritual, something more poetic. It's saying that the relationship with God, uh, verse, what verse 3 calls a covenant, 
This spiritual relationship or everlasting covenant with, with God is like bread and water to us. All of us are hungry and thirsty for God like we're hungry and thirsty for bread and water. That's the metaphor that Isaiah's driving at. The Bible gives us a technical word to summarize God's style of relating. Grace. Grace. Grace is at the center of any possible relationship with God of the universe. Okay? No matter who you are. I'm going to quickly define grace this way. God's kindness, his fondness for you. I'm going to quickly define grace by what it's not. Grace is not deserved. Grace is not earned. Grace can't be bought. But this spiritual hunger for grace, like our physical hunger for bread, the spiritual hunger sometimes gets suppressed to the point where we don't realize we're hungry. We're we tracking. Sometimes we get so busy worrying over or preparing for what's next, we can get numb to what's going on in front of us or what's going around us or what's going on inside of us. But again, like physical hunger, our spiritual hunger makes itself known, and oftentimes it makes itself known all at once and ravenously. I like the way that this Catholic monk and author Thomas Merton describes that all at once realization that kind of happens to us spiritually. He says it this way, people may spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success only to find once they reach the top that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. Okay, people may spend their whole lives climbing the ladder of success only to find once they reach the top that the ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. Okay, I'm going to let you sit in that for a second, and I'm going to let Merton clarify what he means in another work called No Man is an Island. As you can tell, I a little Thomas Merton phase. So we're going to go through that together. All right, it goes like this. He says this in No Man is an Island. Why do we have to spend our whole lives striving to be something we would never want to be? <laughs> if we only knew what we wanted, why do we waste time doing things which, if we only stop to think about them, are just the opposite of what we're made for? I have to ask these questions for us, for you and for me. Do we know why we are climbing that particular ladder? What are we trying to get so far ahead of? What are we actually trying to become? Or why do you spend money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Look, you're in a season of unending midterms. The academic stress never stops from about, I don't know, spring break all the way through the semester. And every semester, I'm surprised and you're surprised. And I know it's going to be like the most impossible task ever, but I would ask you, because you're never going to get a break, even over Easter break, to ask to take a few moments in the next several days, pull yourself aside, and ask these kind of important questions about what you're up to. And, what I, and I do that about what I'm up to. Look, you might be like short-term inefficient. You might feel like sitting still is like so unproductive. But satisfaction, what we're after, is actually only experienced in the present. And satisfaction 
is never actually lived out in the future. That's a lie we hear all the time, that it's the satisfaction is just around the corner. It's right now to be had. And that's the invitation of our passage. So like, let me just ask this. The future moment that you're motoring towards might just be unsatisfying. Sid and us. And will we climb this ladder to its highest heights and then all of a sudden look down and, and, look down and see the wall and go, maybe I'm on the wrong wall. I climb this thing and the view kind of stinks. Are we going to jump down? Are we going to take all the time to go rung by rung back down and start on a new ladder? Okay. How painful is that if you don't know how you got there? Look, I already lose track of myself for days. Imagine losing your track of yourself for years or decades. It's very possible. All right. Thank you, Thomas Merton. All right. Look, I just want to hear So hear the encouragement of this passage afresh. God is not just offering necessary and satisfying grace. That's good enough. In verse 1, he's offering extravagant grace, even to people mid-ladder climb. God is offering a grace that nourishes us spiritually like milk does physically. A grace that excites us and makes, us, makes our hearts rejoice like wine does physically. A grace that is good, not just food, but rich food. Decadent dessert. Lamb. Not just chicken. Okay. I like the way that Frederick Buechner puts this. Grace is dependent and unmerited, like the way you can't deserve the taste of raspberries and cream, or earn good looks, or bring about your own birth. A good sleep is grace, and so are good dreams. Most tears are grace. The smell of rain is grace. Somebody loving you is grace. Loving somebody is grace. The grace of God means something like this. This is my favorite part of the quotation. Here's your life. You might never have been, but you are. Because the party wouldn't have been complete without you. Here's the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I'm with you. Nothing can ever separate us. I love you. That's grace. It's the grace of God. So this is God's party he's inviting us into. And he won't just serve bread and water. He will serve milk and wine and raspberries and cream and falling head over heels in love and sweet dreams and our glad and sometimes very scary existence in this room and on this planet. And most of all, he will serve up his presence. What verse 3 calls his steadfast, sure love, God's relentless, unconditional, selfless, active, unflagging, unending, and self-sacrificial love. And this element of self-sacrifice explains how all of this bready, wine-infused grace can be ours without money and without price. This sumptuous spiritual feast is without price for us because God himself paid the price for us. We read this last week, but I'm going to read it again. And it's actually verse 5, not verse 4. It's my fault, not Brooks. Okay. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5. He was pierced, as Jesus was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. 
Do you understand all of this free, available abundance that's on offer in chapter 55 of Isaiah? The bill was paid in full by the costly self-sacrifice of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 53. Do you see the connection? That's why it's free. It's not, it's not, it's not free for God. It's free for us. If our first point is like, why we need this feast? Why should I come to God's spread? The second point, ask our next likely question. Who's invited? Who else is going to be there? That's my question when I think about these things. So to answer this, this question, we're going to look at how verses 3 through 7 explain God's feast. How it works, what it's all about. So I think verse 3 clarifies this beautifully. When you come to the party, you're coming to God. You're coming to God. Here's the thing. The relationship with God, metaphorically, is the party. He literally brings the party. It's everlasting party, and it's a lovely party because he is everlasting and lovely. So spiritually, we don't just feast with God. Spiritually, we feast on God. And some of you go, ooh, gross or weird. <laughs> Welcome to the practice of communion. The Lord's Supper. But let's not lose the point of verses 3 through 7 in a theological tangent. Instead, I'd like to focus our attention on verses 4 and 5. Who's invited? Who's in the guest list? Jesus, the host, and anyone else who's going to come and listen. That's what our passage is telling us. I'm going to start with Jesus, the host. Verse 4. Jesus is the him that's being referenced here. He's the new and better King David. According to the New Testament book of Acts chapter 13, Isaiah chapter 55 is referring to Jesus as a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. But instead of kind of in-gathering all the nations with physical weapons of war, like King David did the original, King David did, Jesus is going to gather all of the nations by the force of who he is, by his magnetic personality. Jesus' resurrection from the grave, his ascension to the right hand of the Father, God, in heaven, they have transformed him from having no majesty or form that we despised him and his life and his crucifixion. And they have actually magnetically, even centripetally, for my science majors, attracted him in form and majesty. So Jesus is what makes the feasts water refreshing. Jesus is what makes the wine exciting. Jesus is what makes the milk nourishing. He is in all of these things. He is all of these things and much, much more to us. Does anyone know who Ra Raquel Welch is? Anybody? Okay, one person. She was the Kim Kardashian of the 60s and 70s. Does that help? Okay. So lots of posters of her. Um, she was sort of uh, on every adolescent boy's wall. Do you know that she recently became a Christian? She was a Buddhist, then she was New Age, and then she tried every other form of spirituality or philosophy on the market, and now she's following Jesus. Do you know how she became a Christian? Anyone? This is a true story. A very nerdy pastor of a very small church in the middle of nowhere, the guy literally looks like Dwight Schrute from The Office, <laughs> handed her a very theological commentary on perhaps the hardest book of the Bible, one, at least in the New Testament, the book of Romans. And she read it, and she fell in love with the grace of God and Jesus. 
The same friend that told me that story told me that he goes to lunch with a pastor on the regular who embarrasses him every time they go out to eat. And you know what he does? He says he talks to the waitress comes over to do the drink order and he says, you know, we have a custom of praying and I was just wondering if we could pray for you. And my friend cringes. (laughs) But you know what he said? Do you know what they do? Do you know what two out of the three waitresses that have had that happen to them have done in that moment? They have broken down and wept at the table. No matter how many tattoos they had, no matter how edgy they looked, they wept and they asked them for very tender things to pray for. Do you, do I believe Jesus is that attractive? Inviting to the people, inviting people to the party doesn't require savvy. Doesn't require smooth lines. It looks like seeing someone as a human being, treating them with dignity, and showing and telling them about Jesus. And according to verse 5, the more we, the guests, find the host Jesus attractive, the more you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that you did not know shall run to you, because the Lord your God is the Holy One of Israel. How do, you know, how do people hear about a good party? Just real life, for a second, which is still real life, by the way, because that's all true too. Other people tell them about the party, and that's shocking. Okay, <laughs> ready? Here's another one. What convinces people to actually come out to the party? The people who have already come to the party, or the people who are about to come to the party, and their actual or potential satisfaction. Even if they look like Dwight Schrute. Even if they embarrass you in public spaces. And the nation that comes to God is not one nation, but a mixture of many nations, if not every nation. Furthermore, African theologians like Lam and Sana remind us that people groups who become Christian don't lose their distinction when they become Christian. Their nationalistic distinctions are only completed. They're only fulfilled. That is, they nationally become, their nationality becomes an expression of their faith. The Christian faith is not one nationality trying to get hegemony and clobbering another nationality. That's what the secular age has done for 300 years since the Treaty of Westphalia. That hasn't been working. Okay? But now notice on the heels of that insight, right, that Christianity is not American. Jesus wasn't born in Texas. Okay. It's not even Western. It's Near Eastern. Okay. It's actually international and meant for every nation. And notice that there's no invite restriction, and this should be blowing our minds. Every social scene, every personal background, every re- religious or irreligious, responsible or irresponsible, good or bad, poor or rich, African or American, we all need God's grace, like we need water and bread daily. Whether you can't remember a moment when you haven't believed in Jesus, or whether you're not sure what to make of God right now, whether you think God should love you, or you think God should definitely not love me. That is why we say in RUF, you are invited. We say it this way, you're never too bad to be beyond the reach of grace 
and you're never too good to be beyond the need of grace. So the emphasis of verses 6 through 7 is not who, but how. That's where we pick up this discussion. How do we come and listen to God, no matter where we are with Christianity or with Jesus? According to verses 6 and 7, we seek. We persistently, we longingly come where God is only to be found. Those places where he promises to show up in his fullness, places like the Bible, places like church, places like prayer, places even like RUF meetings. And when we get to those places, what do we do? Oh man, we call on him. We acknowledge God as God. We praise him. We thank him. We ask him for stuff. We ask him for only what he can give. Those things that are spiritually and physically gifts. That is, graces or grace. But because we don't always want to seek and call, look, often, whether we're new or old to Christianity, we're struggling, right? We're, we're having to forsake the things that we think we need to have to get satisfaction, but ultimately long-term don't offer it. And we're having to return to God, God who has spiritual bread, spiritual milk, spiritual wine that will satisfy us, even if not always immediately and on demand. And I get that part. And I want to put that in there. But verse 7 reminds us not to forget who we're turning to. The God of the universe who's aching with compassion for each of us. And out of his compassion, God wants to pardon. He wants to forgive all of our disordered desires. All of our hangry excesses all of our harsh words and thoughtless actions, all of our coldly calculated thoughts. God is that someone that everyone in this room is looking for, and he's looking for you. Even when you're not looking for him. Even when you're looking for somebody else. Look, we live, we think, we do sometimes live in a world of scarcity. Not enough sleep, right? What's the Davidson thing? You can work, you can have a social life, but you can't sleep, you can't have all three. Okay? We also live in a situation where we don't have enough time in the day. But I want you to hear this. God is super abundant. He does not live in zero-sum gamesmanship. He is not into this dog-eat-dog world. He is super abundant. He plays favorites with everyone. (laughs) He He loves each of us as if there were only one of us. I'm going to end by giving you slightly returning to the beginning and telling a story. Uh, John Ronson is a journalist. He wrote a book, So You Think You've Been Shamed, or So You've Been Publicly Shamed. And it's sort of all about sort of shame in our ad and uh, scam-saturated culture. In this book, he chronicles this young author and celebrity, a guy named Jonah Lehrer. I don't know if you've heard of him. Maybe he's in the Raquel Welch category. Lehrer was the, next, was the next Malcolm Gladwell, right? He was smart. He was an interesting writer. Probably was on the verge of podcast galore. He wrote multiple best-selling books. He popularized scientific academic research and made it accessible to people who read The New Yorker, which is not that accessible. <laughs> Jonah, Jonah had his pop culture, pop psychological outfit on, and he was wearing it to the full, and he did it well. And he was killing the game. Until another journalist realized that Lehrer was plagiarizing his books and making up facts and quotations out of thin air. 
Lair had climbed a very, very tall ladder of success, but it was definitely leaning on a very, very crooked wall. Seven months later, Lair tried to recover his career by giving a public apology slash lecture at the Knight Foundation. They paid him $20,000 to do this in front of a screen that live tweeted people's reactions. It's a true story. With 20 minutes left, Lair's apology isn't convincing enough, and the live Twitter stream makes it very clear, clear that there is no forgiveness for him. No possibility of, of re-entry. And sure enough, several years later to that day, you don't know who Jonah Lehrer is. His career and his person are not forgiven. But a year or so after writing his book, John Ronson goes on this podcast, and he starts talking about Jonah Lehrer, and he says this sort of thing unprompted, which I love. I would like to have him, I would like him, Jonah Lehrer, to have another chance. Not so much because of who he is or what he's done, but I'd like to live, oh, sorry, I would, I'd like, to, like him to have a second chance because I want to live in a world where people have another chance. I want to live in a world where people have another chance. Don't you wish Davidson was a little bit more like that? Can I just, can we poke a little... We do that. I want to live in a world where people have another chance. What can't money buy? Second chances. What can't be sold or shrink wrapped, packaged or spammed? Forgiveness. What can God alone offer us in Jesus Christ? A compassion that plays favorites with everyone and loves each of us as if there were only one of us. That's what's being offered. Come. Come and eat and drink and listen. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the ways that you have worked in this passage in my own heart and the ways that you uh, maybe have worked in these students' lives through through these words. Um, there's a lot going on in our world and it's hard to even feel like our brains can, can rest let alone our hearts and I pray that you would help us to find our rest in you that you would help us to take a minute and ask ourselves if we want to go up to the next rung whether we're on the right ladder whether what we're consuming is actually necessary or even rich and extravagant. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for passages like this that are both challenging and comforting in ways that are beyond my ability to pray. And I pray that you would once again use these words like you've used them for thousands of years in the lives of these people in this room including me. In your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.